Hi, this is Carol Bishop with Form Pioneering Design. Thank you for joining The Arch. The Arch connects and supports the art and design community. Today we are really fortunate to have Mark Weaver with us. He is a remarkable designer and a visual adventurer. Good morning, Carol, and thank you for inviting me to chat with you. I'm, I'm looking forward to our visit. As a designer, an art patron, a collector, a cultural innovator, I could go on and on with adjectives. How do you explain what your profession is or how do you see um, a description of yourself? Well, an interior designer's career is multifaceted. You're involved um, not only meeting with clients, um, but with architects. You're meeting with all the subs. You're meeting with landscape architects, um, artists, and lighting engineers, sound engineers, audio video people. So you have to have a vast knowledge of many different aspects of this profession and bring those to the table. And when you're knowledgeable in, in many areas, it's advantageous to the client. You're giving the client the f your full services. Well, today, many architects believe that they should do it all. They want to do the interior design. They want to do the landscaping. Have, have you seen a trend that um, you can identify with people who want just the architect to do it? I think that's an perhaps maybe an unusual situation. In my case, um, I always find it a collaboration of all these people. It's a collaboration with the client, the architect, and everybody else involved with the project. And when you have that atmosphere, it creates a better result, and it's a more pleasant working environment. So if somebody is looking to hire just one person to handle everything, it's probably a very specific client and they have complete trust in that person. So then let's talk about your working with all of these people. There's mm -hmm. different personalities. There's the people who have the skills, who make the things, the buyers, um, the clients, right. your own studio. How do you juggle all of these uh, characteristics? <laughs> well, I always say that our, our our job is about 10% talent and about 90% psychology. So um, you're, you're working with different personalities and in any given day, you go from one project to the next and one client to the next and they're different personalities, they're different needs, some people are married, some people have children. So I think it takes somebody who understands how to um, get the client involved to find out where they're going, what type of personality they have, and adapt so that you can zero in on, on this particular project with them. In that case, when you get a client that's challenging, mm -hmm. or you have to work with somebody whose skills you need, but they're very difficult to work with, how do you handle that situation? Well, that's one of my favorite things. Uh, I think I tend to like difficult people. <laughs> and uh, I find it a challenge, and I find that once you've secured the trust of, of a particular person, that they listen to you very carefully. They realize that you have a vast knowledge of what you're doing, that you're, you're there to help them. You're there to assist them. I'm not there to fight with them. I don't want to get into a situation where I have to battle with a client. Uh, I won't 
take a job like that. Um, I want this to be a wonderful experience. I want it to be a rewarding experience for, for both of us. And I want, to, I want to share my knowledge with the client and show them what we're doing and why we're doing it. And I think once you get to that point, you, uh, the difficult part of it sort of disappears. So give us some tips on how you establish or make this trust. In my case, I, I love getting the clients involved. It's one of the things that I enjoy. I like showing them what we want to do. A client may come to you and say they want a specific look, a particular thing, and you realize that that may not be the best thing for this particular situation. So I will show them, try and tell them to keep an open mind, and I will show them other possibilities, other directions to go, maybe things that they haven't been exposed to that I can bring to the table. And so, um, and once you show people that you um, are creative and that you have different ideas, uh, they're excited to sort of explore those. And it doesn't scare them at all? I don't think so. I think people I think people want somebody. They're hiring you because you're creative. And I think they appreciate the fact that you're you're there to work with them and, and to expose them to new ideas. So what draws you to a particular project? Well, I guess that's uh, there's several things. One initially would be um, the client. And it's some somebody that you connect with that you like you find um, somebody you'd love to work with. Secondly is perhaps architecturally it's an exciting home or exciting building and you're anxious to do that. So those are probably the two strongest reasons why I would want to do a project. So I'm going to ask right now about um, trends because you're studio has been um, a very important studio for a long time in LA so you must see things come and go and certainly right now the mid-modern gray and white has somehow stayed for a while how, how do you break out of that because that isn't your sensibility how do you get clients to say oh I will try something else well there are always trends. There are always things that come and go. And, I mean, over my career, I, I've seen, you know, we've gone through periods of, of um, country French and modernism and so forth. Um, myself, if something becomes trendy, I'm not there to give my client something that's ordinary or in fashion this week. I'm there to give them something of quality and something that will last the test of time. And I think I look at design as um, something that is going to make a statement and will look good for years to come. Um, furnishing a home, designing a home, offices, whatever it is, uh, takes a great deal of money today. And I think there's nothing worse than having it look fabulous today. In three years, it looks so dated and tired. So um, I'm a bit of a classicist, whether it's a contemporary project or um, something traditional. Um, I look at it as something that uh, is, is not trendy, is not faddish. Now, we, of course, we have perhaps one of my clients, their, their young daughter wanted a room that was purple and pink because it was in a particular movie that, and it, she loved it. And, you know, it's great. We did it, and it was good for three years and move on. But um, generally, that's not our approach to design. 
to find something that's trendy. First of all, uh, we have several meetings with the client and find out what what they had in mind, what direction they're going. We look at the architecture, will dic which will dictate a certain direction, and we find out what they want to do with the space. And then we'll analyze all this information, and um, it may require that we hire an architect or different contractors to do um, some pre preliminary research. But then we'll go to the client and make some suggestions, perhaps, that they make some architectural changes, because not all spaces um, work. And to create a great space, it's not just a matter of furnishing. It's a matter of making sure that the space functions, that all the elements are in the right place, windows, doorways, ceiling heights, and so forth. And so um, we show them the different options they have and what the costs involved. And then we sit down as a team and we analyze this and sort of all come to an agreement what, what the best uh, approach for that job is. So it is a group um, situation. It's a collaboration. collaboration. Sure. Uh -huh. Great. So what has been your greatest challenge? My greatest challenge has probably been myself. <laughs> I know that <laughs> <Elaborate>. when, <laughs> when I um, when I built my my own house, um, it was my architect said to me, "You know who's the most difficult client I've ever had?" And he said, "No." I said, "Who?" And he said, "You." <laughs> and um, so, I think you know when I when I see a project, it's very easy. It's very clear to me. The minute I walk into a space, I can see it completed. I know exactly what has to be done. It just, it's very simple. Doing something for yourself is much more difficult. So, but it's also, let me add, it's also very, very satisfying. Yes, yes. So um, let's talk about your connections to Italy, mm -hmm. because I think this is a, a big factor in your mm -hmm. work. So do you want to go over um, your connections and how you started with your Italian sensibility? Sure. Uh, this is a great question, because I'm leaving for Italy in 10 days. Um, my mother was Italian, and... I grew up with, you know, the Italian culture, the influence, and um, I grew up in a very small town and wasn't exposed to a lot of um, art, uh, design, that was nowhere in my youth. And I remember the first time I went to Italy, it was just so thrilling and so exciting because I remember my first trip was in Rome. And I put on my shoes and I put on a leather, my new leather jacket and a pair of jeans, and I went out walking for hours till I practically collapsed. I just couldn't see enough. It's one of the most thrilling experiences that I've ever had. I went to the Vatican, I went to the Pantheon, the Forum, and everything that I had learned from my Italian family suddenly came to life. And I felt at home. And it was just a thrilling experience. So um, I love to travel the world for projects and shop. Um, I'd have to say Italy is probably my favorite country to visit. So I love Italian uh, and Roman antiquities. So I love Roman architecture. Uh, so I guess it holds a special place in my heart. And how about the food? Well, I mean, <laughs> you know, part of the great thing, people say, what, what influences you as a designer? Well, for me, travel is probably one of the biggest influences. And, you know, I just don't look at 
architecture and art. I look at culture and lifestyles and food, and it's all part of the living experience, which is what we try to bring something extraordinary and exceptional to our clients and introduce them to things perhaps they know nothing about. So I love the food. I love exploring restaurants. I love trying new food, looking at how the restaurants are designed, how they function, how buildings function. That's one of the the great things about traveling is acquiring knowledge of all these different areas. So when you go to a place, and since you're going to be in Italy soon, do you set up an agenda or have a theme, like you're only going to look at churches or you're only going to look at spaghetti? (laughs) (laughs) No, No, although that sounds pretty good right now. Um, No, I don't. I I do have a program, but I don't, um, it's not too structured because Part of the thrill for me when I travel is having it a little loose so that I can explore and all of a sudden I'll discover something and then it'll take me off on a tangent. On this particular trip, we're going to the the south of Italy to... um, we're going to Rome and then to Naples, Pompeii, and Herculaneum. Um, I, it's one of my passions is um, antiqu- Roman antiquities. So, and one of my favorite museums in the world is the Naples Archaeological Museum. And it has an extraordinary collection of, of items from Pompeii, Herculaneum, Pozzuoli, all that area. So I've been there but haven't been there in many years, and I'm looking forward to visiting it again. Well, since you go back to places and have had experiences, do you find in the contemporary world there are some big changes, and could you address any that you've noticed? Do you find Italy the same as it was, or Rome the same as it was? Mm, I'd have to say yes. Um, I mean, things change, things evolve, but the city, the physical city itself hasn't changed. These things have been there for 2,000 years and and they're going to be there for some time. Everything is protected by law. So, um, and I think that's, for me, that's one of the thrills. I grew up in Southern California and anything here that was 40 or 50 years old was old and you get to Italy or you travel to Greece or, or Egypt and you have things that are thousands of years old. So, it's a different point of reference. So, But it also brings up preservation. Yes. And what are some of your ideas about um, how today in Los Angeles there's a call to take down many old places in order to put up huge programs of all kinds of high rises and multiple dwellings? Do you have any feelings about that? Yeah, I think, I think it's important that we... Um, have a sense of preservation. I think I don't want to live in the past. I'm a person that lives in the now and the future. I don't live in the past. However, I adore the past. I adore history and um, architecture, art from dating from Egypt through the Greeks, the Romans. And had that all have been destroyed, we wouldn't have that reference today. And if you look at all of our, um, you know, our government buildings in this country, they were all influenced by classical Greek and Roman architecture. And um, we're still copying them 2,000 years. We're still copying the art um, furnishings. Uh, the Klesmos chair, for instance, which was one of the the very earliest pieces of recorded furniture. I mean, if you go to the Getty Museum, the Getty Villa here in, in Malibu, um, there's a particular um, marble frieze, and in it the royal throne chair 
is the Klesmos chair. And the Greeks copied it from the Egyptians. The Romans copied it from the Greeks. And I have them in my home today. So it's something extraordinary that's passed the test of time. Can you think of any building in Los Angeles that will be honored in 100 years? Well, I think we probably have several um, buildings from the Deco building. I think it's the West, one is the Western building. I think there's some public buildings downtown that are remarkable. Um, and it'll be interesting to see how our more modern buildings hold up over the test of time. For instance, um, the, the um, Disney Music Center by Frank Geary. It'll be interesting to see how that's perceived 100 years from now. Or the Peterson Museum. Right, or the Peterson Museum, exactly. Because, um, they have um, a big bang, but will they again? Will um, they last? Yeah. You know, you look at perhaps um, LA County Art Museum, and it was modern and fashionable in its time, and it became dated. And um, I don't know, I like the buildings, but they weren't particularly respected. And um, it's now become a bit of a, oh, it's all being redone now, so. That was my next question, yeah. because that is a controversy in LA. Yes. Um, especially because it's going to go over a major street, Wilshire Boulevard, right. and there are people on both sides who feel the money or the design or the time isn't right for it. What, are, what is your feeling about LACMA? Well, I think right now it's a bit of um, it's a bit of a mess. It's a, it's just a there's several different directions there. It's just it's confusing. The layout's confusing, the architecture's confusing, and I think uh, this effort to try and, and unify everything is very important. Um, I don't know that I'm the right person to judge whether this current um, direction is going to be the right one or not, but I think it's a step forward in the right direction. And the fact that it's gonna span two streets I think could be very exciting. Um, and when you look at what architecture, modern architecture has done to the world. Look what Frank Geary did with the Bilbao Museum. And we had uh, one of the great architects that I thought, and unfortunately she died a few years ago, Zaha Hadid. I mean, some of her designs are just, she's a visionary. She's one of the greatest visionaries in, in architecture. And so I think it's important to explore and try new things. And, and like any field, some things are successful and some aren't. So hopefully this will, will be a major success for Los Angeles. It's certainly needed. Well, MOCA, um, our uh, other museum downtown, I believe is going through some renovations. Yes. And I know your heart is in that museum because you're one of the founding people who yes. um, created it. Do you want to give some background on what your vision was for that museum and how you feel about its evolution? Well, I think it's time for the museum to um, change and grow. When it started, it was a very small museum. It's not a large structure. And shortly afterwards, they um, acquired the temporary, which is, I think, now the Geffen Contemporary. And But I think it's time that the, the street, Grand Avenue, um, has the Colburn School, which is a major um, musical institution. Today we have the Broad Museum, we have the Music Center, we have the Walt Disney Music Hall. So it's become a very, very important arts destination. And I think it's time for it to evolve and grow. 
I, I don't think things need to stay static. I think they need to evolve and grow along with society. Speaking of society, we have a very diverse society. We have um, a lot of economically challenged people. Some of those people don't have access to some of our culture. They can't go see an opera. Mm -hmm. They can't get into the Huntington Museum at $24. Um, what, what is your feeling about working in a diversity? You know, um, there are programs in this city, and I think, unfortunately, a, a lot of people don't know how to access it. I know the L.A. Opera, and I'm a patron of the L.A. Opera, and they have days that are um, available for inner-city children so that it can expose them to this exciting art form. And the same with um, several of the museums. They have days where, where they're open to the public, free of charge, so that they can afford it. One of um, the greatest institutions in the world is the Getty. And we have the Getty Villa and the Getty Center off the 405 freeway. And these museums are open to the public. They're free of charge. The only thing I think you have to do is have a parking reservation. I think they might charge a nominal fee. And, you know, you're exposed at the Getty Villa. It takes you back to Pompeii 2,000 years ago with some of the greatest um, art and sculpture in the world. It's thrilling. So that's available to everybody. But, you know, perhaps people don't realize that. And the Getty Center is the same way. And it, it it's a, an evolving exhibition up there. So... It's a very, very interesting collection of buildings by Richard Meyer. Um, the landscape is, is incredible. The experience of getting up there with a tram is exciting. You arrive at the top of the mountain, and you have these extraordinary vistas of, of L.A. So that's available to everybody, whether you can afford to you know, go to a concert or whatever. These museums are free. So in your studio and in your program... How do you handle environment? Do you address that with your clients, or do you have a, a take on that? I'm glad you asked this question because it's 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 an important. Um, this is an important question. We're very conscious of the types of materials and things that we work with. Um, we're always looking for new materials, innovative things. We work with um, all different counties and cities, they all have different requirements for materials, what, what, is, what you can use. Um, several of our clients will come to us, they don't want anything synthetic, they want all natural materials, nothing with formaldehyde, um, carpets that are cure, cured and created without formaldehydes, chemicals. We have clients that want no chemicals in the house whatsoever. Um, and today we're very conscious if, if it's an older house, checking it out to make sure there's no asbestos, um, toxic materials, um, molds, and so forth. So it's just become part of our culture, and we incorporate that into the whole process of either construction or reconstruction. We're, we're exploring those areas to make sure that we're providing safe environments for the clients. Mm -hmm. Did you have a mentor at any point? Um, I don't know. I really didn't. However, I had a dear friend, and um, he had hired me to do um, a project for him in the desert. And I would have to say my friend Lester became my mentor because he had a talk with me one day, and he said, Mark, let me, let me tell you how you need to deal with people. 
and he sat down and talked to me and I still today use the knowledge that I gained from him when I um, meet people. It was very, very helpful. But um, influences early on my in my life in the in the design um, while I was in design school, one of my greatest influences was studying the work of Billy Baldwin. I was a great fan of his. So, what is your ultimate goal when it comes to your work and your projects? I'd have to say the ultimate goal is, and probably the biggest thrill for us is. Um, the completion of a project and to see the effect of what we've done on the client's lifestyle and um, how we bring something so exceptional to them and how it's life-changing for them. And that for us is the biggest thrill, to have a client come to you and say, Mark, we absolutely love this place. It's changed our life. And I'll never forget, um, I completed one project for a family, and a week later she called and said, I can't thank you enough. She said, you know, we never functioned as a family. The kids were never home. She said, for the first time, we're having dinner together as a family. She said, all the kids, their, their friends all want to be at the house. They love the house. They're, all the kids are up in their rooms with their friends. They hang out here. And she said, she said, even the dogs seem happier. <laughs> so that was, that was the greatest thing I think I've heard, and it was thrilling to hear, and was very satisfying. It so, must have been. Yeah. But have you ever gone back to a project you did and say, oh, no, I shouldn't have made it red. I should have made it blue. Well, I think as a creative person, you're always doing that. You're always looking at what you could have done better, what you could have changed. I mean, I never stopped doing it, and I think that's what makes you creative. I think once you stop that, you've sort of lost your edge. So in your own environment, since you've been a collector, do you rearrange things or is it right and you keep it that way? <laughs> no, I think it's I think it's one of the diseases of the profession. Um, I'll get up at 3 o'clock in the morning and move something because I wake up and I think, I should have done this or I should have and I'm constantly moving things and to me the placement of things is almost like DNA and if I feel it doesn't particularly fit right or create the right energy I'll rearrange things until it does and I feel it it's something you feel and something you sense it's like a dog going into a room you'll see a dog go into a room and he'll find a particular spot and he'll circle around till he finds the right spot and sit there or he'll walk out of the room and human beings whether you do this consciously or, or, or unconsciously do the same thing if something doesn't feel right you're not comfortable in the space so um, it's an energy that we create and it's something that you feel and so I think it's important to, to constantly improve that. Well, not only do we have the energy, but I think works of art have the energy. They're yes. living things. Yes. So can you comment on a piece that you've found in your life that you just love, that is your best friend? Well, one of the things that um, I love the most is um, it's an oil lamp, um, which is from Pompeii. It's a reproduction. So I went to Naples, I went to the foundry, and I spent two days climbing through their um, cave, through their catacombs, until I found the mold for this particular oil lamp. I had seen it in the Naples Archaeological Museum. 
and they reproduced it for me and they made several and they became the light fixtures in my home when I built them. And it's just something that I look at um, all the time and think I was really lucky to have found this and it's such a beautiful piece and has such an extraordinary history and I just feel like it enriches my soul. Are you aware of the um, Stendhal syndrome that when he saw a work of art that moved him so much he just started crying and shaking and I think that can really happen. People sometimes say to me, oh, I, I felt weird in front of that Matisse painting or that Picasso piece. And I said, well, you have the syndrome. And it sounds to me like some of this art affects you the same way. Yeah, I think, I think that's why you become attracted to, whether it's a piece of art or a human being, there's an energy that you feel. Um, everything has an energy. Everything creates an emotion. And I think it's a matter of learning to tune into the, these things and discovering what it is. And if something speaks to you. Now, on the other hand, I've looked at art that I've wanted very badly and my initial reaction was positive. Well, I know now that I don't want to react and purchase it right away because I find that things have been sometimes challenging and I didn't like them. And I look at them over a period of one, two, three years and I begin to understand them. I see different sensibilities. I get a different feeling. And all of a sudden I discover something magic in it and love it. And things that I have reacted to very strongly at the beginning, um, the feeling seems to go away just as quickly. It was just a whim. So, Well, I think we're all seduced by um, the, the quick um, feeling that you can get. Mm -hmm. You know, it's the mm -hmm. sugar. Yes, and it is the sugar. <laughs> a lot of art has a sugar high. Right, um, right. And, um, of course, when we talk about classicism, one of their ideas was it lasts forever, meaning it would have mm -hmm. um, gone deeper and deeper into the viewer's mm -hmm. feelings and um, mind as well. So um, that's very tricky, though, because don't you always say, oh, my God, if I don't get it now, someone else will. <laughs> well, yeah, and, and I think um, I'm not an impulse buyer. I tend to think about what I do and I look at it in the context of uh, where it's going to be placed. So, I mean, I do buy things on impulse, but generally it's not major items. If it's a major item, I give it some thought and I give it some time so I can dissect it and analyze it. Do you have a hobby or an obsession? <laughs> You're so busy that um, do you have time to do some other things? Travel is a big passion and a hobby of mine. I do love, uh, I love nature. I love um, hiking. I love being in nature. I love gardening. So I'm just starting a new project for myself. I'm doing a new home for myself. And the biggest thrill for me is designing the garden. So um, the setting is very lovely. It's very private. And I want to create a very zen-like garden that's very peaceful and very natural and something that's indigenous with indigenous planting so it's all um, native to the area. Can you tell me something about your specific projects that you enjoyed or you felt were um, really um, exciting for you to work with? Sure. 
Um, in, in the last few years, I've done um, several residences on a ship called The World. And it's a residential ship that travels the world, and you, um, each client owns their own particular residence on the ship. So the first residence I did was about 1,400 square feet, and the largest one was about 3,600 3, square feet. And um, so one of the projects I installed in Cadiz, Spain, another one was when the ship was in Hong Kong, and it was very exciting to work on this. It's very much like working on a house just here in Los Angeles. You just design everything, everything is shipped to a particular port and installed there. But in the, in the process of um, several months, you're working on the ship with crews for all the construction and the remodeling of, of each unit. So that was very exciting to do, and, and the ability to travel while you're doing it was a lot of fun. And we also um, just recently completed a, a very exciting project um, north of Santa Barbara in the wine country, um, a large estate with vineyards and just beautiful views. And it started off as a small project and ended up very, very, ended up as a five-year project. And um, I think one of my most favorite parts of this project was the wine cellar, which is quite vast. And we brought all the stone in from France and the brick that's on the ceiling um, from Italy and it's when you step down to the wine cellar you feel like you've gone back into a 200 year old Italian wine cellar and um, it has its own kitchen its own area for the owner of the house so he has a cigar area um, Outside, there's a pair of doors that open onto a terrace, and it overlooks the vineyard. And it has a pair of fireplaces and a pizza oven and an area to dine. And it's just really spectacular. So it was a lot of fun doing that. And then now I'm starting a new project for myself, and that's really quite thrilling. So it's this is a very it's a more modern house than I'm used to. So I'm looking forward to doing this and redesigning the house architecturally, and then furnishing it and doing the gardens. So that's going to be a lot of fun. Will you juxtapose some of your pieces that you find to be more classical or neoclassical with the modern? Yes, I absolutely. I like things slightly eclectic. So for myself, I don't buy things that just pertain to, say, the period of the home. Um, I buy things as I travel around the world, and I buy things I'm passionate about. And it may not be the perfect piece there, but it's something I love and I love to look at every day. And it reminds me of the joy that I had when I was visiting Italy or Vietnam or wherever it was. So I like having things um, from my life around me. And I think that's part of the joy of, of doing something for myself. Well, a lot of visual people time travel when they see things mm -hmm. that they had acquired years ago in Shlobovia or wherever they mm -hmm. bought it. <laughs> so, um, you know, having um, it around you probably takes a lot of energy too, though. Don't you get so excited that you just can't get up and get out? <laughs> no, no, I think it um, it's... I, I feed off that. I, I feed off the energy of all this stuff, and I think it's exciting. And, and also, it's interesting because when other people come to your home and they see these things, you can explain to them what they were. And most people aren't familiar with a lot of this stuff, so you've, you've opened up an entirely new world to them. So it's educational, too. So what is your advice for young designers starting out today? 
Uh, I speak at UCLA to the students, and that's one of the subjects um, that it's, they, they constantly ask. That's the first question they'll ask. And I think the most important thing for young people today is to travel, whether it's domestically or internationally, and to explore and learn as much as they can get. Because in this business, um, it's not just about going out and selecting a pretty rug or pretty curtains for a room. It's an accumulation of knowledge, of architecture, of art, sculpture, color, lighting design, um, audio video, all of this all of this knowledge. So the more you can travel, the more you can learn, the more you bring to the table. So I think it's very important that you keep exploring and you keep discovering. There's more out there today than what's just on your telephone and just on the internet. So what I try when I talk to these students is I introduce them to different things, to different ideas, how to explore, how to discover these things in the world. And um, I think that's probably the best way to learn. The best way to learn for me has been to travel and discovery. I'm a visual person and I learn by seeing. So you had a gift to be a visual person in a world where many people are not, although more and more are becoming visual, how do you reach more people in order so that they can appreciate the arts as opposed to math and science, which is the big push right now in education? I think we're exposed to that today constantly. I think with with um, television and media today, the way it is, um, people are very, very aware of all different aspects of, of art and culture. Um, when I was younger, there was nothing like that around. We didn't have the internet. We, were, we weren't exposed to these things. And today, my, my clients' children um, are much more aware of design and uh, fashion, art, food, than I was at 20 years old um, because they're exposed to it all day long. So I think, and, and you know, when you're young, you just absorb all this stuff. You're like a sponge. So kids today are, are, are very knowledgeable about this. I'm not sure if I answered your question, Yeah, you Carol. did, right. <laughs> you did. So many students are interested in professions rather than having um, a love of a particular way of um, finding themselves. So in other words, they'll go into business just because they want to make money. Mm -hmm. Do you see the arts as being economically sound for people as professions? Do you recommend that people go into the arts? Yeah, I absolutely do. I think to live in a, a society without art is living in a society without passion. Life is art. Every bit of life, whether it's business or whether you're a sculptor or an accountant, it's all art. Um, I consider every profession art. Um, I mean, if you're a lawyer and you're very skilled at it, you're no less of an artist than an artist who can create a, a magnificent piece of classical sculpture. It's just a different aspect of life. So, um, but I think art as we know it, let's say sculpture, paintings, architecture, landscape, um, is a traditional 
way that we think of art is very important because it enriches our life. It gives us visual excitement and satisfaction. It's nice to call it satisfaction. I really like that phrase. And I know you may have some um, feelings about my next question because we've discussed it. Do you have a manifesto, a set of beliefs? Well, I, I do. Um, I have a very strong set of beliefs. And I think as a result of, uh, if I look back at my career now, I feel very strongly that um, we have, as a designer, we have a responsibility to um, our clients. We have a, a financial responsibility. We have a, a responsibility to educate our clients. So I think um, one needs to be responsible. I think one needs to be thoughtful. I think people need to learn how to respect people, um, how to understand people with different ideas. Just because I have an idea of this is the way I would do this particular project, if you ask 10 different designers, they'd have 10 different approaches how to do the same thing. And it doesn't make one right or wrong, but you have to understand and respect everybody's approach. So um, I guess my manifesto is to live your life with dignity and respect. Beautiful. So what do you want to be remembered for? Hmm. I'd like to be um, remembered for somebody with um, great integrity and great dignity. And I look at some of the great designers, whether they're architects, sculptors, furniture designers. You know, I think of Mies van der Rohe created the, the Bernot chair, and I have them in my dining room. And I think, I hope that I'm able to design one thing that will last over the next hundred years that people will still want to see and buy. I think that's wonderful to be able to create, even if it's just one signature piece. Well, it has really been great talking with you, Mark. I want to thank everybody who's been listening, and please join us next time on The Arch. This is Carol Bishop, and would also like to thank our sound producer, Bruce Barker, producer Jerry Levy, for helping us make this happen. 